This is They Create Worlds, episode 147. Others in the field, too. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. So today, we're not going to talk about video games at all, or at least not a company, not a particular person, not people and places. We're going to talk about historians, librarians, people doing oral interviews, people writing articles, people doing crazy things. Talking about video games from a holistic view of other people doing things. (laughs) Something like that. As we talked about last time, I am in the middle of a gigantic life change. It's a very good life change for me. I'm excited about the future. But it does mean that things are going to be just a little tight over the next coming months here at They Create Worlds. So we've done a series of episodes that are a little lighter on our typical in-depth content, though I would say the first one of this track still had some pretty decent in-depth content, are taking a kind of a breather almost so that we can build up some episodes quickly that don't need quite as much research while Alex runs away to Georgia. I feel so alone. (laughs) You are surrounded by cats. Yeah. You know how people are always the crazy cat lady? I'm the crazy cat guy. I have five of these things. <laughs> yes, it started with two, then he inherited three more. It happens. Life, man. As long as you aren't out there on your porch throwing them at people that get lost in your little forest cul-de-sac, it's still okay. For now. Are you sure? I could just be sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, petting my cat, and just constantly going, Next time, visitor. Next time. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm fleeing to Georgia, just in time it would seem, and uh, before I do, we are going to do this last in kind of this trilogy of pause and look around us episodes. The first was kind of pausing and looking back at our own work, some of the stuff that I've discovered since we covered some of those topics. The second one was looking back at my book work specifically by doing a reading uh, that was annotated. And this time we're going to turn outward and look at other people's work. We did this, as we said at the end of the last episode, once before, but it was way, way back in the dawn of time. There's been so much stuff that's happened in the last few years that is worthy of highlighting. Some people that do stuff regularly, some that don't, some that are just doing deep research, some that are just doing really good preservation. There's a lot of people that are worth highlighting that are doing very important work in this field in the kind of professional amateur or amateur professional realm that we definitely just wanted to take a second to highlight some of these people, talk about their work and some of the interesting things they've discovered. Of course, then point you to where you can learn more about what they're doing. What would be the best way to do that? Would we organize this by people who are doing actual research, then maybe people who are taking that research and then presenting it in some sort of way, either in articles, YouTube videos, or some other form of media? Maybe at the professional level, say, where you actually have recognized institutions that are doing more things, actually having serious funding to preservation research and 
trying to correct the historical record. Sure, we can do something vaguely like that. Which means it'll all probably fall apart as soon as Alex starts talking too long. But it's at least something to get us going before it all goes to hell. So I think the easiest place to start, though, is actually with kind of an overarching group that many of the people I'm going to talk about are affiliated with in some way, shape, or form, and that Jeffrey and I are also affiliated with in some way, shape, or form. That is a wonderful web community and Discord community called Gaming Alexandria. Gaming Alexandria takes its name from the Great Library of Alexandria, the ancient world's repository of all knowledge, essentially the biggest library in the world before it was burned down tragically thousands of years ago. The founder of this organization actually goes way further back with Jeffrey than with me, even though I was the first one of us to actually become part of the Gaming Alexandria community. Tell the folks about that a little bit, Jeffrey, and about your sordid past in video game fandom. So way back in the day, back when I was in college and a little bit before then, I was very heavily involved in the Dragon Quest fandom. A small group of people who were on IRC, conversely, some websites, and so on and so forth. Then, eventually, the Dragon Quest News Network that was formed. This just sort of kept on track of, hey, here's some of the cool things that have been happening. I took over managing that for a while before life issues of my own with college just taking up way too much of my time, so I couldn't really do much more than, hey, the server is broken, can you fix it real quick? Conversely, as a result of this interaction back in 2002, when Enix, before they actually got Square, was still Enix, they decided to try and reinvest in North America because they haven't actually released Dragon Warrior, Dragon Quest for quite a long time. Their last one was actually on the NES Dragon Quest 4, Dragon Warrior 4 US. They decided to come back and say, all right, we're going to bring in Dragon Warrior 7. We're going to do all this other fun stuff. Yay, happy. That kind of blew up in their faces, unfortunately, because people looked at Final Fantasy 7, then they looked at Dragon Quest 7, and they're like, what? No, it doesn't look as pretty. As a side note, before you continue, I may be the only person in the entirety of North America that finally broke down and bought a PlayStation so he could play Dragon Warrior 7. Quite possibly. I was a Nintendo person. I played a lot of PC games. Basically, I had my Nintendo 64 and my Super Nintendo when I wanted things like Mario or Street Fighter. You know, I spent a lot of my time playing PC games, so I completely missed out on the first wave of PlayStation stuff. I was vaguely aware that some of it was happening, but I wasn't playing games like Tomb Raider or Resident Evil or Metal Gear Solid. I did play Final Fantasy VII because it came out on the somewhat dodgy PC port that was done by IDOS. But then Dragon Warrior VII is the game that finally made me go, I want to play this game. The statute of limitations has long since passed. We made an epic attempt to try to get me an ISO that I could use with an emulator. PlayStation discs could be read by some CD drives, but they couldn't be read by all CD drives. So there was first a gigantic comedy of errors trying to rip my own copy of the ISO. I bought the game, and I tried to rip my own copy of the ISOs. My computer wouldn't read them. My aunt and uncle's computer would read them, but then we had some other problem with their computer that I forget. So I was not able to get my own ISOs. So then 
Jeffrey very uh, nicely tried to help me out with that and tried to uh, share the ISO with me across what constituted the internet back then. There was no pirate bay to go to. There were no torrents. This was before P2P. There was P2P music sharing. This was post-Napster. But there wasn't widespread P2P, and I wasn't in the IRC community where all the cool kids were actually making this thing happen. Jeffrey puts it up on his server because he has a server. I try to download it, and it is slow, and it takes for frickin' ever. And we have some false starts and stops, but then it finally looks like it's going to go through. We get to 99%, and it crashes. And it was set up to do resume download. Fun fact, kids, back with the old FTP stuff back then, if you got to 99%, the FTP software basically said, ah, that's close enough to 100%. We don't have to back up your progress anymore. So I got to 99%, and it failed. And we lost it all after like two days of downloading. At that point, I was just like, eh. And I bought a used PlayStation from one of my friends. And enjoyed Dragon Warrior 7 immensely. It was all worth it in the end. The true Dragon Quest was the ISOs we made along the way. So since we had Dragon Quest 7, because I'm so used to saying Dragon Quest instead of Dragon Warrior, I just use them interchangeably. That was coming out. That was going to be the big thing. Enix reached out to people in the community, obviously the Dragon Quest News Network. Hey, do you guys want to come out to E3 and actually be there for exploring and our guests and stuff? I'm like, okay, sure. Lo and behold, all of us who have only just met online, we've never met in person before because we're all over the country. Four of us all got together, rented a hotel room together, flew out there to L.A., Got close to where the convention center was, had a hotel there, walked down to the convention center every day, met some people from Enix at the time. Someone out there had the picture of all of us together. I don't have it, or at least I can't lay my hands on it for some reason. In this group, we have Dustin Hubbard, who goes by the handle Hubs in Discord. He is the one who actually founded Gaming Alexandria. That's right. So Alex knew about my relationship with Dustin because I've told him the story of how I went to E3 and met these crazy guys. He goes like, wait, Dustin. He goes, do you happen to know Jeffrey? (laughs) And he goes, yeah, I'm his friend. (laughs) That's right. I knew who Dustin Hubbard was, but I didn't know Hubs was Dustin Hubbard when I first joined Gaming Alexandria. We have both met Dustin in person, and he is just a very small part of everything that Gaming Alexandria does anymore, but he's the one that really kind of got us all together and got this rolling. The big thing that he does is scan things, scan all the things. I often joke that if you're familiar with the Futurama episode with the brains, where the brains went to collect all the knowledge in the universe and then destroy the universe so that no new knowledge is created, I always like to joke that Hubs's plan is to scan everything in existence, and once he does, then he will have to destroy the universe so that there are no more things to scan. He scans boxes. He scans instruction manuals. He scans magazines. He scans additional materials. He does it all at a very high quality. I mean, he knows his stuff. He has a good scanner, and, like, he knows this stuff. He doesn't just know what DPI means. He knows the best DPI for any situation and uh, has done some how-to guides and whatnot for scanning video game materials. So, I mean, 
yes, he's one of us amateur professional or professional amateurs, but he scans material just as well as an archival institution would. He makes it all available for free on the wonderful Internet Archive. He has been uh, scanning a lot of Famitsus recently, which has led him to have a very vocal Japanese fan who has declared him the god of scanning and is always excited when the god comes down from on high to deliver the latest Famitsu. He's also been uh, scanning a lot of coin-op mags, replay and play meter, which he crowdfunded buying from a used bookstore in Rockford, Illinois, that had a bunch of them from the owners of the store, I think, actually, specifically, had been in the coin-op industry, and so they had a bunch of old replays and play meters from the 90s. He bought the whole bunch of them for several thousand dollars, partially crowdsourced, crowdfunded. Then I went on an epic adventure, because until I moved to Atlanta, I live about halfway between Rockford, Illinois, and Hubs. So I drove up to Rockford, loaded all of them in my car, nearly bottomed out on one steep slope, because that was a lot of magazines, and then drove them back to my place, and then the next weekend drove them to Kansas City, where Hubs met me, and we uh, traded them off. This was somewhat early in COVID. We masked and, and did all the good safety stuff. Yeah, so we've both met Hubs now, though Jeffrey met him first. <laughs> Very true. Very nice guy. If you ever go onto Gaming Alexandria Discord... Alex and I are both in there. I am not very active in there. I will just occasionally poke my head in there or respond if someone actually pings me. Alex is in there very, very often, is often commenting on various historical things, historical this, historical that, research, commenting on this, that, joking around. Yep. If you have any interest in video game history, and if you're listening this far in the podcast, you probably do. Definitely check out Gaming Alexandria if you are not already a member. It is a wonderful resource with a whole bunch of different things. And it's not just scanning and preservation. They write articles sort of analyzing Mm -hmm. some of this stuff. They have resources in there and other experts who go, hey, I'm trying to research this. What are you working on? They will help each other out. There's actually a subset of people who will help like, hey, I'm going to help with articles, doing proofreading, doing editing for video and audio and getting ideas. Sometimes I've even been pinged to go, hey, I'm trying to solve this issue with my podcast and my audio here. What do you suggest? Try to help them out if I can. Absolutely. It is a truly inclusive and international community. We have several Dutch members that are very prominent. One of them, Densi, has subscriptions to some European newspaper databases and has helped me out on more than one occasion by indulging me by doing keyword searches and seeing what articles come up and print the results. We have a very prominent Swedish member of the group who is a specialist on Sunsoft and has been working on all things Sunsoft. He's even gotten interviews with many people from Sunsoft in Japan. He's hasn't just interviewed like people from their American subsidiary or whatever. He's really deep on that research. We have several French people. We have some British people. We have someone from Singapore, a couple of people from Japan. I'm sure we have people from many other countries I'm not even aware of or that I'm forgetting. But the point is, uh, we have a strong American contingent, but also a, a very strong overseas contingent. We help each other out. The Discord is entirely free. There's no donation necessary to access the Discord. 
You can just go there, and it's a great community, very helpful and very collaborative. Of course, we'll put everything in the show notes, so you don't have to uh, remember what I've said here, but gamingalexandria.com, that's the website. That's very simple. There is a link to join the Discord right there on the website. I highly recommend checking them out. Oh, our Canadian contingent, they would drown me in uh, poutine if I didn't mention our very active Canadian contingent, especially Dilly, who does a lot of articles for Gaming Alexandria, and Dale, quarter past, who is our resident FCC conspiracy theorist. If you have any interest in seeing how the podcast is actually edited and you don't follow us on Twitter where I usually announce it there, I announce it in Twitter and I announce it in the live stream in Gaming Alexandria. If you pay attention in there, whenever I do a live stream edit on Twitch, I will throw it in there saying, hey, I'm editing now. Hang out with me for a couple hours while I bang my head against a wall. You'll get all sorts of entertainment there. <laughs> Absolutely. That's kind of become our hub for a lot of this stuff. Great place. Who are some of the people that hang out in this hub? Well, of course, one of the more prominent ones is our good friend of the show, Ethan the Oft-Invoked, whom uh, seems to always come up in this podcast in one form or another. And we did talk about him as well in our previous Other People in the Field episode all those years ago, but since then he's done a lot more, so... He's definitely worth mentioning again. Ethan is just a very, very, very dedicated one of us amateur professionals or professional amateurs that, just like myself, is very interested in getting the real stories or as close to the real stories as we can get behind everything going on in video game history. Just like me, he's very active in doing oral history interviews. He's also very active in getting documentary evidence because even though all of us rely on oral history a lot because oftentimes that's one of the main insider sources that we have for any given game or topic or company, oral history is an imperfect way of trying to capture history because memory is tricky. People don't remember things well. Sometimes they think they remember things well and they really don't. And just to make everything more fun, the more often you access a particular memory, the more likely you are to keep further and further distorting said memory. We use it when we have to. We use it in the areas where it's particularly useful. But then we try to do other things. And Ethan has been the real pioneer among us of getting into court cases. A lot of the insider information in my first book would have been completely impossible without court documents, which are one of the best ways at getting at some of these companies. Because when you're talking about companies of the 70s and 80s, even if they're companies that still exist today, they don't really tend to have records anymore. Like Electronic Arts is a company that goes back to 1982. Activision Blizzard, in the form of Activision, is a company that goes back to 1979. But just because they're that old doesn't mean that they really kept anything from that far back. Companies tend to make the worst archivists. There are some companies that become very interested in their own history, like Walt Disney and Coca-Cola. They start amassing these massive archives of historical material. Most companies in most fields, and video games are like this as well, don't tend to do that. If you're trying to get at what was going on in companies way back in the day, 
corporate archives are probably not going to get you very far. But court cases can get you a lot of things because in court cases, when they're trying to prove something, they depose a bunch of witnesses who have to tell the truth under oath and they request a ton of documents with all sorts of nice dates and people and activities, corporate materials that may not exist anymore at the corporation but still may exist in the court cases. Ethan right now is up in Chicago. Chicago is one of the regional depositories for the National Archives. The way it works with these court documents is, theoretically speaking, all federal court cases are preserved. Not just the decisions that you see in the court reporters that you can find online by going to certain websites, but the depositions, the interrogatories, the motions, the transcript of the trial itself, all of this stuff gets saved. Once the case is old enough, it's no longer kept at the courthouse, at the court itself, but it is sent to a regional National Archives office for long-term archiving. There are several of these around the country, each of which are responsible for a particular region. In Georgia, where I'm moving, Atlanta has a NARA regional office, and they have all of this material for not just Georgia, but most of the Southeast. Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, South Carolina. Now, for certain courts that see a lot more traffic, they don't preserve everything anymore, unfortunately. For instance, the New York Depository, which is in Kansas City of all places. It's the only one that is not located in one of the states that it actually serves. They have in Kansas City the archives for New York, New Jersey, and Puerto Rico. Because the New York courts see such a huge volume of cases, they actually went 10 or 20 years ago, I think 20 though, and purged most of the trial cases that were not considered significant in some way. So it kills me that we didn't go back 20 years ago, not necessarily me personally, but somebody, and start preserving some of these materials because there's some interesting cases in New York that are now lost. But... There's still a lot of stuff, and Ethan being in Chicago, where the regional office for Illinois and other states, which is, of course, Illinois is the center of the coin-op industry, there are a lot of court cases up there, and Ethan has been pulling a lot of information from Magnavox patent lawsuits, from the big Bally Williams scuffle over patent infringement on solid-state pinball. He pulled documents from the famous Casey Munchkin case, where Atari and Midway sued Magnavox, North American Phillips, over the Casey Munchkin game, which they claimed was an infringement on Pac-Man, which Midway was the coin-op distributor in the U.S., Atari was the home game distributor in the U.S. He's been scanning a bunch of materials up there, and he has been uploading all of that stuff to the Internet Archive as well. We'll put a link to his collection of files in the show notes as well. These are not copyright infringements. In the case of the stuff Hubs is doing, it's technically copyright infringement, but as long as they don't complain to the Internet Archive, it's kind of fair game. But court cases, because they're government documents, all government material is automatically in the public domain. The government does not retain copyright of anything it produces. So court cases are actually public domain. It's completely legal to scan them, post them online, do whatever the heck you want with them. We have gotten so much information out of that material we're still hoping, I don't know if I'll be able to participate now that I'm going to live further away, but before COVID happened, 
we had been planning because Ethan is up in uh, Chicago, I'm in St. Louis, then our pal uh, Norm, the gaming historian who has a very popular and very well done YouTube series, actually lives in Kansas City, and the three of us were going to descend together on the National Archives facility in the suburbs of Kansas City, which is where the New York cases are, and spend half a week, a week, however long we were going to do it, frantically scanning everything that they still had there. Unfortunately, COVID completely destroyed that. National Archives research rooms are still not open to the public at this time. One of these days, we hope to get there and suck all of that out of there because it's so great. Norm actually already went once, and he got what was left of the Universal Studios versus Nintendo case, which is the case where Universal sued over Nintendo's Donkey Kong, saying it infringed on King Kong. We talked about this. We did a couple of episodes on the legal cases, court cases, and this is one of the cases we talked about. To make a long story short, Donkey Kong, King Kong, captures woman, takes to top of tall building, gets knocked off tall building, you know, they decided that there was enough similarity there that they ought to sue for copyright infringement. Well, Nintendo won that case. They didn't really even get to the question of whether those similarities constitute an infringement because, as it turned out, King Kong was in the public domain because King Kong had been done by RKO Pictures, which was no longer in existence. The rights had been in a very muddled state. Universal had wanted to remake King Kong in the 70s, uh, producer Dino De Laurentiis wanted to remake it with them. So they actually went to court to prove that King Kong was in the public domain because, and I won't go into the details, you can go to our episode, but basically the chain of transfer of copyright from person to person to person after RKO had been done improperly, and so due to technicality, it was now in the public domain. So obviously the court was very unhappy with Universal then trying to turn around and sue Nintendo for infringement on something that Universal itself knew was in the public domain because they had argued themselves it was in the public domain. Pretty crazy stuff. The trial court case is gone now, unfortunately. This is one of those cases that was purged when they did their big clean-out 20 years ago. The appellate case still remains. Now, in appellate court, you're not going to trial again. For those of you who are not aware of the legal system in the United States, all an appellate court does is look over the materials that were produced in the previous case, like trial transcripts and the judge's ruling and the objections by counsel and the motions and whether the judge upheld them or denied them. They look at how the trial was conducted and will only provide some kind of remedy, whether that's throwing out a case, remanding a case for further consideration by the lower court, etc., if they found some defect in the way the law was applied. You don't retry the facts of a case in appellate court. You know, there are no depositions or trial transcripts or evidence that were created specifically for the appellate case. Because they have to review elements of the case to rule on the appeal, Key portions of the original case are appended to the appellate case as an appendix. Appended, appendix, that's where it comes from. Some deposition material, some evidentiary material, some transcript material survives as part of the appellate case. And Norm went in and got all of that material and used that as part of his very fine 
video documentary on Donkey Kong, which we'll also link in the show notes. Norm isn't someone we're featuring today only because there are so many people, so little time, but he truly is awesome. And his YouTube channel is definitely worth a subscribe and his videos are definitely worth a watch. So we'll throw that in as well. This is all a roundabout way of saying that Ethan has been our point man in really understanding the importance of court cases and where any of us researchers can go to find and get court cases and get deeper, greater understanding of the video game industry. If that's all he had ever done, he would be a superstar just for that. He also does do his own blog, which is often very interesting, called History of How We Play, which, despite the seemingly broad name, is really focused on video game and coin-op game, even electromechanical coin-op game, history. He only posts here sporadically. He does not post regularly at History of How We Play. He has some very interesting articles on there, probably the best one to kind of get started at seeing what kind of stuff he's doing is he did a wonderful article on Breakout, on Atari's Breakout, where he really wanted to nail down the timeline of everything that happened. As people who listen to this podcast probably know in broad strokes, because we've talked about it, and it's a story that gets discussed a lot in video game history. Breakout was kind of sort of created by Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs, the future co-founders of Apple Computer. I'm greatly oversimplifying so that we don't go into the whole story, so please know to be like, but he really didn't because this, this, and it's like, I know, I know. I'm just oversimplifying to get through the material. Because Wozniak and Jobs were involved, there have been a lot of different stories about who did what, when, why, how over the years, and Ethan went through and tried to clean that up into a semi-cohesive narrative using both some stuff available from books and magazines, as well as some internal Atari documents that I unearthed from the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, and shared the details of with him. That's a good one. He also did one on the origin of the game Periscope, and whether Sega or Namco did it first, that's another good one. I would definitely encourage you to check that out, and of course, we will put that in the show notes as well. One final thing that Ethan is involved with right now, uh, he's got other irons in the fire as well, but the last one that I really want to talk about here is that he is the uh, historical consultant, historical researcher for what looks like it could be a very exciting new documentary series that's being created called Arcade Dreams. What makes this series stand out from some of the other coin-op documentaries that have come out over the years is that this one is going to look at all of coin-op history. It's going to really do a lot of focus on the electromechanical stuff, going all the way back to the late 19th and early 20th century, not just the video game stuff or not just pinball, which is where most of these documentaries tend to land. In the amount of episodes they have, I don't know how much detail they're really going to be able to get into on all of that. But even the fact that they care about that stuff at all makes them very different from other documentaries of this vein. They're going around and shooting footage of as many of these old games as possible being played. They're not just showing us a picture of a flyer or a picture of a cabinet or something like that. They're really trying to show gameplay on as many of these old things as they possibly can. Just the way it looks in their trailer for it, it, it's just very uh, beautifully shot. 
I think there's a good chance this will be a special documentary. I can't fully endorse it until I actually see it, but it does seem like their hearts are in the right place. It does seem that their technical know-how on how to create a documentary is in the right place. Ethan is serving as their researcher, and he's certainly very diligent. We'll link to their page. They did crowdfund. There's a Kickstarter page. I was not part of crowdfunding that, so I am not saying all of this to you with having had a uh, financial connection to them in any way, but I'm definitely watching them from afar. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, always has a lot of stuff going on, and he's one of these people that's just very good at collaborating with everybody that's doing stuff, and he's a big part of what's made Gaming Alexandria this place where everyone can come together and collaborate and do all that kind of good stuff. Certainly, Gaming Alexandria is the source of a lot of great and wonderful people who are doing a lot of the research that needs to be done. Dylan, Ethan, many, many more. Absolutely. And there are actually two more that I would like to highlight before we move on from that crowd. One of them is a fellow by the name of Kevin Bunch, who I think I can call a friend of mine. We've actually met each other in person a couple of times now, and, and we get along well. So I'll call him a friend of mine. Kevin has kind of two things that he's doing really well. First of all, he is the creator of the YouTube series called Atari Archives. What he is in the middle of doing, which I think we may have mentioned last episode briefly, is he is playing every single Atari VCS game ever released in the order they were released and doing little historical documentaries about each one of them. He goes not just into this is the game and this is how it plays. It's not just a let's play video. That part of it is there with all of the footage authentically captured from real Atari VCSs. I could be wrong. I think he might use a combination in certain situations of some emulated footage as well. Don't take that as gospel because I could be wrong. But I do know that he does capture real footage of these games from an Atari VCS. And if it's a multiplayer game, he cons other people into playing with him so that they get real authentic multiplayer captures as well. So it's got that aspect to it, but he doesn't do it in a let's play format. What he does is he goes in-depth on exactly how the game works, who created the game, what inspired the person that created the game, how they created the game, if there's anything interesting and how it was programmed or that kind of thing. He goes deep on every aspect of these games, and each episode so far is devoted to a single game. He's in 1981 right now. As he gets deeper into 81 and into 82, that's when the market just explodes. And not only do you get a lot of games, but you get a lot of very silly, insubstantial, and bad games. My understanding is as he reaches that time period, in certain situations, he will lump groups of games together. He won't just do one per episode. But for the big ones, he'll keep doing one per episode. These videos are interesting in their own right. But as a researcher, he's done a couple of things that are really good. First, he has really honed in on when these games are released. He has done extensive research in newspapers and trade publications and magazines to see when some of these games were actually released because it's not as easy as you might think for these very old games. Back in this period of time, for most of this period, you did not have a dedicated video game press. You didn't have a dedicated coterie of people that was looking out for when each release would come. As we've talked about before in some of our episodes, 
there was no such thing as a launch date back then. Basically, when you had a game that was finally ready to go, it was mastered and you've started manufacturing it and everything else, you would start chipping out that game to the people that ordered it on kind of a first-come, first-served basis, and it would take you a while to do it. You wouldn't just, like, ship to everybody overnight one day or ship to everybody over a two-week period and hold everyone to a street date where you said you're not allowed to sell before X and X date or we'll sue you. Basically, you just sent that stuff out, and as stores got it, they put it out on their shelves. Games would trickle out over a period of time. If you were really close to a distribution center, either one of Atari's own factories or distribution facilities or one of the bigger sales rep organizations that also served as regional distribution hubs for Atari products. We talked about that a little bit in some of our How Crazy Atari Got episodes. If you were close to those places, you would get your product faster than someone who was further away, and you would get your product out in stores. So there's nothing you can point to that said, on such and such a day, this game was released, like you can with modern releases. You can't even always reliably say what week a game was released. Usually you can fairly reliably say what month a game was released. Even that can be really tricky. Like Pac-Man, for instance, was officially launched in April on the Atari VCS. There was even a national Pac-Man Day, which was one of the very first attempts to have a national release, but it still wasn't a street date. So even though there was a national Pac-Man Day at the beginning of April, it had been on sale since like the middle of March in some parts of the country. All you can do is look at trade publications to see if availability was announced there, like There are retail-dedicated publications like Merchandising is one, and Playthings for the toy industry is another. Sometimes there'll be an announcement in there that's saying, you know, Atari spokespeople say the game is now available for ordering, which you can, you know, take is pretty reliable. Other times you're just looking through newspaper databases and you're searching for ads to find the earliest ad you can for a game at a local store in a local town. This is something that would have been impossible before things like newspapers.com and Newsbank that have made a lot of these papers more accessible. You try to pin down a date from there, though even that can be very fraught because oftentimes a store to get your business would say, game's available now, come down and get Space Invaders for $29.95 or whatever, but they don't actually have any of them. But what they're doing through that ad is getting you in the store. And then when you get in the store, they say, I'm sorry, we are out of Space Invaders at that time. However, I have here this list. If you would like to put your name on the list, I will make sure that you get a copy of the game when they arrive. Some stores would advertise early, deliberately, knowing that they didn't have the game because they wanted to get you in and wanted to get you on their list For all they knew, their competitor down the street was going to get their shipment before they did. Like I said, it was chaos. Nobody knew exactly when they were going to get their shipment vis-a-vis their competitors. So it was good to get people in the store and get them to put their name on the list rather than risk that they walk to the electronic store down the street, which happens to get it before they do. Kevin has put a lot of work in tracking down release dates and trying to give us 
a general order of release. Again, in terms of month, never in terms of day, because there is no such thing in this time period. Technically, it is factual that there was a day that the first copy of a game was sold. But until we all have time machines and can take our time machine to every single store in the country circa a specific month in 1980 and visit all of them until we see the first one where the first sale is, it's an impossible thing to know because there was not a standard release date. That's one of the big things he's done. The other big thing is he has interviewed some people that no one else has interviewed or that have been interviewed in the past but haven't necessarily been interviewed in detail on some of the specific topics that Kevin is interested in. We mentioned one of those in our last episode, the annotation episode, when I talked about how he'd interviewed Craig Nelson at Atari, and that's how we were able to figure out what this R&D operation that uh, Ray Kassar cut in January 1979 was. As we said then, kind of the way it got handed down through the ages was, oh my God, Ray Kassar cut all of Atari's R&D in 1979, and wow, that's awful, an electronics company, a technology company without R&D. It's really that he cut this one little group, and because Kevin interviewed Craig Nelson, we were able to get a better picture of what happened. Another great friend of the show, another great Gaming Alexandria person, uh, Kevin Bunch, we will put Atari Archive in the show notes. The other thing he is doing that is not Atari Archive is he is definitely now the world authority on the RCA Studio 2. We've talked a little bit about the Studio 2 here. It was basically a failed console. It was the second programmable console ever released after the Fairchild Channel F. For a variety of reasons, it was a dismal failure. But it's still interesting, and the story behind it is much more interesting than its fate. Kevin has interviewed a lot of people. He's gone to the Hagley Library, where there's actually an RCA archival documents collection and his mind it for stuff. He's partnered with the Hagley Library on various initiatives. He's currently writing a book on RCA's involvement in video games that he uh, hopes to find a publisher for, and we wish him all the best in that. That's Kevin. Great guy. Who is the other person you wish to give a shout-out to? The final person is Kate Willard. Kate is another one of these people that is very active in the gaming Alexandria community, and she is very big into the history of comic books as well as video games. So she's very much, you know, kind of interested in broader popular culture. But in video games, she's done some real in-depth research on certain topics. She does deep dives on things that interest her. Then she posts these on her website, A Critical Hit. She also often does YouTube videos. She will also do Twitter threads sometimes for things that she doesn't want to do a full article or a full video on. A couple of interesting ones are she tracked down the creator of the very first software Easter egg. That's one of the areas that just interests her. It's like, what really was the first Easter egg? Of course, Adventure is known as the game that pioneered the whole concept of Easter eggs. I mean, the term Easter egg is derived from Atari's description of the Atari manager, Steve Wright's description of the hidden room and adventure. He called it an Easter egg. That's where the term comes from. We've known for a long time that it wasn't really the first Easter egg. Every so often, a previous Easter egg gets discovered that was earlier, but was not popularized. In some cases, it was not even accessible. There was one on the Channel F, for instance, that was programmed, but because of the pinout 
of the final system, you couldn't actually make the Easter egg work on an actual retail Channel F. We knew there were a few things before that. Ed Freeze discovered an Easter egg in Starship One, which is possibly just about the earliest video game Easter egg, but it wasn't discovered in its own time. Kate discovered the earliest Easter egg, probably, as we know right now, in any computer program of any type, not just a video game, which dates back to a text editor called Tico or Teco, I'm not sure which, T-E-C-O, that was developed at MIT in the 1960s. And this program, to create a name for a file that you're working on, a text file that you're working on, the command to do so was make dot dot dot, make insert name here. If you typed in make love instead of naming your file, the program would say back to you, not war, question mark because this was the late 60s on a college campus, height of the student protest movement, the slogan, make love, not war, very famous. So it's a pun. That's kind of the very first Easter egg that we know of, which is defined as an undocumented feature within a program that is put in deliberately. It's not a bug. It's not something that happened accidentally. A little undocumented feature put in a program kind of just for the fun of it, just to be cute, that is not part of the functionality of the program. Kate decided to track down who actually created it, and she started with the creator of Teco, but that wasn't the person that actually put it in. Then she followed more breadcrumbs until she finally found the person that put it in, who didn't even realize, as many people who pioneer this kind of thing don't, didn't even realize he'd created the first Easter egg, because at the time, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't something they publicized. It was just something he thought would be cute to put in, so he did it. So that's one of her very interesting deep dives. She also did a very interesting deep dive on Justin Bailey, the famous password in Metroid. Are you familiar with the Justin Bailey password from Metroid? I actually am not. In Japan, it was a Famicom Disk System game, so you could save your progress on the disk. When it came to the United States, of course, there was no Famicom Disk System. It was released on cartridge. In the United States on the NES, there were two ways that you could save progress long-term on a game. You could go the Legend of Zelda approach and put a lithium battery in the cartridge to uh, power some RAM. Then you could do a backup in memory on the cartridge. If you didn't want to go that route, then you had to do passwords. We all love passwords on NES games, don't we, Jeffrey? L-L-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-
a capital or a lowercase k mixed up, which is very easy to do. Then all of your progress could be lost forever. Or think about a CRT where it's fuzzy anyway, and they decide to use some sort of fancy font. I'm looking at you, Castlevania. <laughs> you better hope that if they used both zeros and O's, that they used a font that differentiated between a zero and a capital O half decently. Doom. Just doom. <laughs> Passwords were terrible, absolutely terrible, but it was about the only thing they had. Of course, most of the time, the passwords were gibberish, like the one that Jeffrey just spelled out for you from the mystery game. There was actually a password in Metroid that allowed you to begin the game with kind of a boost. It wasn't a start with everything at the end of the game code, but it allowed you to start with all the missiles and six energy tanks. It happened to be the name Justin Bailey. Because this was a name, because of something easy to remember like that, this became one of those codes that appeared in all of the tips and trick guides. This became a famous code for Metroid. And of course, what that meant is everyone was really, really curious, who is Justin Bailey? Why is there this code? No one could ever figure out who it is. This tickled Kate's fancy, and so she looked into the whole thing. Of course, you can read her article for the full scoop, but... Basically, what it comes down to is, no, there is not a Justin Bailey that, like, the code is named after. It's just a coincidence that that combination of letters—I mean, when you have so many combinations of letters that lead to different game states, inevitably you're going to eventually find one that actually spells out something coherent. It's, it's like the, you know, thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters problem. You let them type long enough, and eventually they'll type the great American novel, as they say. When you have enough combinations, you're going to get combinations that are real words occasionally. Justin Bailey happened to be one of them. And, and what Kate is pretty certain happened is she's traced it to the area where it probably happened in Kentucky. And what it probably was is it wasn't probably Justin Bailey himself that typed it in, but it was probably there was a Justin Bailey that went to school in Kentucky that would be the right age to be in NES games at that time, and probably somebody else in his school was just for the fun of it typing in the names of random classmates to see what would happen and hit upon <laughs> Justin Bailey as a combination. The big thing Kate's working on right now, there are two, both of which I'm very excited about. She's also very interested in the history of women in games, women characters in games, female protagonists, representations of women, that kind of thing. She's doing two deep research projects right now, one of which is the terrible, terrible adult games on the VCS, most notably Custer's Revenge, that were put out by a company called Mystique. Or was that the company? Kate shared with us in Gaming Alexandria a lot of what she's found. I'm not going to spoil what she's found because she's still working on that article, and that's her story to tell because she's done all the legwork. But she has gone deep on that and found some very interesting information on who actually did these games and what the whole story there was. Very interesting. The other is she's doing a really deep dive on the first Carmen Sandiego game. She has talked to nearly everybody that is still alive that had anything to do with the creation of the original Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Also, with many people involved in spinoff media like the television shows, which we talked about in our own Carmen Sandiego episode. I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Kate Willert, a critical hit, the website. She has YouTube active on Twitter. Again, we'll throw all of that into the show notes. You don't have to remember it from this broadcast. Wait, we're broadcasting now? 
When did that happen? Figuratively speaking. We broadcast in the same way that each one of these episodes ends up in the can, even though we have no film canisters. Oh, I thought we were just trashing them. Oh. Uh, no, those were supposed to go out for people to listen to. Oh, darn. <laughs> That's kind of all uh, some of the people. There are other people at Gaming Alexandria doing great work. I don't have time to mention all of them. Dylan, who we mentioned, has done some great articles. Dale's tracking down every last thing the FCC ever did to anybody. Ghazi is doing all of his work on Sunsoft, which is very in-depth. There's other projects. I'm sorry that I can't mention them all, but if you love video game history and if you don't, why are you listening to this? It's definitely a, a fun place to hang out. I think the only other reason to listen to this would be that just by listening to you talk, it just lulls them into a sense of calm and sleep. Ah, so I'm boring and put people to sleep. Or I'm this generation's Bob Ross. One of those two. Let's go for the Bob Ross one. Over here, we have a happy little video game preservationist. They are uh, waving uh, from the Gaming Alexandria Discord as they do their happy little video game research. Uh-oh, here's Stephen Kent. He's making mistakes. But don't worry about those mistakes. We'll just paint over these mistakes with another happy little video game researcher. Oh, dear. So yeah, that kind of sums up the amateur professional or professional amateur side of things. And I don't use either of those terms in a derogatory manner, by the way, because I myself am an amateur professional slash professional amateur. I'm talking about people that are not doing this work as their day jobs. They're not affiliated with institutions. Yes, I'm a published author, but I mean... I don't make enough money off of that thing to live a week, <laughs> let alone a year. So, I mean, even those of us that have been published, which a couple of us have, it's not our livelihood. But we are providing the same attention to detail and care and hopefully providing interesting context and connections in video game history as professionals at least should be that make their living doing this kind of thing. So that's why I kind of like to use that term professional amateurs and amateur professionals when describing people like myself and, and others that hang out at Gaming Alexandria. We will leave Gaming Alexandria behind. We will try to draw away to people with pitchforks and torches so that Alexandria doesn't burn again. <laughs> and look to the professionals, those people out there with real money who can make this a day job and do the professional thingy. We've talked about this before. Academia is only really just starting to approach this topic with any degree of rigor. It's still too new for the historians, and there are still almost no historians that are doing anything in video game history, just because it's not 100 years old yet, and, you know, people are still alive, and historians like their history good and dead before they engage with it. History is still not being done by historians. Media studies are starting to do history work, though oftentimes these aren't historians. And so even as they sometimes reveal interesting things, I'm not always as interested in what they're doing. I find the academic world is still lagging behind because they're not taking the time to do the basic historical research. And we've talked about this. That's why I wanted to do my books, for instance, is we need some sources out there that are very focused and accurate on the 
where, what, and when, and go a little bit into the why, how, why does it matter aspect of it, so that the theorists that really want to take it and run with the whys and the hows and the broader historical context or the broader media landscape can do that effectively. There isn't a lot of stuff yet that I'm particularly impressed with in that area, and that's based on my tastes. I mean, everyone's tastes are going to be different. Obviously, the academic community has very many things that they are excited about, and they're allowed to be. I'm not the final arbiter on what is great history. I'm far from it. I'm just another guy with an opinion, though, a guy with an opinion that at least has done work in this area. There are a few people, though, that seem to be starting to take a higher level of care with this. There are a couple of books coming out in the near future that I am very uh, excited about that bear watching for when they finally arrive. One of these is a book on the Intellivision and on Mattel Electronics. I say the Intellivision, but it's not just Intellivision. It's going to be on everything that Mattel Electronics did. So we're talking about the handhelds, we're talking about the Intellivision, we're talking about the Aquarius computer, all of this Mattel stuff, which we did an episode on, so I won't belabor the point. But a couple of academics, one's in an anthropology department, the other is in a film and media studies department. It's kind of coming out of those disciplines. But Tom Bolstorff and Braxton Soderman are the individuals that are doing this. They have gathered lots of documents. They're, they're actually doing the important grunt work. Like the academic work that impresses me is the academic work that actually does those deep dives to make sure that they're getting it right and are not just quoting Stephen Kent or David Chef's game over for their facts so that they can get done with the boring factual part and get to the theorizing. These guys gathered a lot of documents and they've talked to everybody they could find, not just programmers and designers, but tons of executives as well. I helped them uh, get in touch with a couple of people, but they only needed my help for a couple of people. I mean, they'd already found just about everybody all on their own. I mean, they are going really deep on this, and their book should be coming out. I don't know if it's still coming out this year at this point. If not this year, then, you know, hopefully early next year. I don't think the book has a name yet. I can't give you a name or like an Amazon or a publisher pre-order page to look for it or whatever. But this book on Mattel Electronics, I think, is going to be a real winner. And it's nice to see a couple of academics that are taking such care with the historical research on that one. Another one that's coming that our good friend of the show, Ethan Johnson, actually helped out with proofreading and and fact-checking is there's academic book on Pac-Man coming out. It's a collaboration between a Dutch academic and Tim Lapertino, who did the wonderful Art of Atari book, which is so good. They were each working on separate Pac-Man projects, and the Dutch guy, Arben Terpstra, he was doing a book that had authorization from Namco, so he had access to all of that. Tim Lapertino, who does really good work on industrial design and art and whatnot stuff, he was talking to a lot of people and getting an in-depth Pac-Man book of his own going, focusing on the art side of it, I think, but he was unable to get Namco's official cooperation. So basically, the two of them ended up joining forces and combined their work into one ultimate Pac-Man book where they have Namco's participation so that they could get interviews with people within Namco, they could get archival materials from within Namco, as well as talking to all sorts of other people. They tracked down Stan Jaraki, 
who is in his 90s now and who was the VP of marketing at Midway when Midway released Pac-Man in the U.S. That book is also very, very exciting to me and should be coming out in the not-too-distant future. That's a couple of kind of book projects that are going on in academia that are very exciting to me. The other aspect of things is just places that are preserving video game history, institutions, not necessarily active projects going on, but just that are taking the time and the care to make sure that some of these archival collections exist for when the historians, long after you and I are dead, finally decide, okay, maybe this is something worth writing about now. There's kind of three to highlight really fast. The first of these is Stanford. Stanford is in the heart of Silicon Valley. So it stands to reason that they would have some materials. I'm hoping to go to Stanford next year in the spring if the world stops being crazy on us enough that I can do the trip. I was hoping to go in 2020, but uh, nobody got to do what they wanted to do in 2020. They have some papers collections. They have Al Alcorn's and Steve Bristow's collections, two early Antari employees. They have a few other donations. They have the entire trials transcript from the Atari Corp versus Nintendo case on Monopoly, on whether Nintendo was a monopoly and engaging in unfair competitive practices with the NES in the late 1980s. That trial transcript, everybody took the stand in that trial. <laughs> the heads of almost all the third parties, or at least a high-level representative, Hiroshi Yamauchi himself, the president of Nintendo, took the stand with a interpreter. Just looking at the who's who on who's in that transcript is salivating, and Dick Lairberg, who's since passed on, donated that entire transcript to Stanford, so I definitely want to see that. The court repository for Northern California is also there, uh, not at Stanford University, but the regional NARA facilities in San Francisco, and so if I get out there, I might be able to get into some of the West Coast court cases, too. Stanford is definitely an institution that is taking this seriously in the United States. Another, of course, is the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester. That place is just fantastic. I visited a couple of times to do research, but then, of course, I also wandered around the museum. It's dedicated to the history of play in general, not just toys, not just video games, not just board games, but just the very act of playing in any form that it takes. But as part of that, they do have the International Center for the History of Electronic Games. They have been amassing large archival collections. They have donations from the founders of Broderboon, the founders of Sierra Online, the founder of SSI. They have a huge Atari and a huge Williams coin-op collection of archival documents, a bunch of other smaller donations as well. They may have a small Nutting Associates collection that's called the Alexander Smith Nutting Associates Collection because it was given to me by the widow of Bill Nutting, and then I passed it along to them. They do great work. You can visit and delve into their materials. The museum itself is also very cool, fun to wander around. They have a lot of coin-operated games out for play. You have to get tokens to play them, but they're there. And they have other stuff that isn't video games, as I said, too. So that's a really, uh, really fun place. The other thing is really not about others in the field, but it kind of brings it full circle back to around to stuff that I'm doing. I'm sure we've mentioned before on here that the Smithsonian Institution is doing an oral history project with pioneers in the video game industry that they're calling, funnily enough, the Video Game Pioneer Archives. I am the kind of head researcher on that. 
Chris Weaver, the founder of Bethesda Softworks, is the point person on the Smithsonian side and does the interviews. I do most of the research. COVID has slowed us dramatically, though we are still actively seeking out people and, and conducting interviews when we can. We did an epic, like, 12-hour-long interview in multiple sessions, obviously, with Ken and Roberta Williams over COVID. Roberta Williams almost never gives interviews, so this was a humongous coup to be able to sit down with both of them for that length of time over Zoom, because it was during COVID. I did not get to attend that interview, as I have some in the past, because it was over Zoom, and they wanted as few connections as possible, because Zoom can get a little wonky the more people you put on a call, and we're trying to keep these at the highest quality level possible. I still was involved, of course, with the research of that. The great thing about the Video Game Pioneers Archive is some of our transcripts are now up. I hadn't realized this until a few months ago. They kind of snuck them out on the Smithsonian website at some point here during COVID. Not all of the interviews that we did are up yet, but transcripts with the people who created Space War are up. Our Nolan Bushnell, Alan Alcorn, Ted Dabney interviews are up. Don Daglow, Brenda Laurel. A few very interesting interviews that the complete transcripts can now be read on the Smithsonian website. And of course, we will put those in the show notes as well. It's good to see that there are institutions out there that are collecting this material. Even though we're still in the infancy of this material being interpreted in an intelligent manner, it's at least good to know that the archives are being started up, that this stuff is being saved so that as more and more professional historians and more and more of us professional amateurs and amateur professionals as well want to really get at the heart of what happened in this crazy industry, they will have some kind of outlet to do so. It's wonderful to hear that the work done by so many people I think will really have an impact that will be unprecedented for historians in 50 to 100 years. Absolutely. That's the hope. I mean, obviously, none of us, unless technology takes a fantastic turn in the next few decades, none of us will be around to see any of that. But I really do think that these institutions, these individuals doing this great work, all of us together are really laying that groundwork so that when the time comes to really get at the, the heart of what was this video game thing anyway, they won't be like, well, shoot, I wish somebody had been chronicling some of this stuff at the time. They won't have to say that because, uh, you know, the work's being done and it's good work. There's certainly a lot more work out there to be done. Really what I think is one of the best things that is being contributed now is just the oral history of mm -hmm. the actual people. That is something that is unprecedented in history for so many fields. Yeah. You think about the toy industry and all the things that we wish we would have had from founders, creatives, executives back then. There are people who lament that now. Yeah. Back in the 1800s, back in the 1900s, that were just, wow, I wish someone would have preserved, talked to these people that we had some sort of idea instead of these fragments that we have today. Absolutely. I mean, we can't hit everybody. We always miss some people. That's always true. You can't get them all, but we are targeting a lot of those people. Ethan talks to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of people on specific topics, specific things. Other people are doing a lot of great oral history as well. And so some of those recollections will endure and, and survive, which is very heartening. Oral history isn't perfect, 
but it's always good to know, even if the facts aren't always accurate in oral history, it's always good to get a sense of what the, the people themselves were thinking about what they were doing, even if you get nothing else out of it. We're going to have that, not just for famous creators, but also for lots of executives and even some people in, in much lower level positions, right on down to the assembly line in some cases. So it's, uh, it's truly wonderful. Yeah, it is amazing. At some point, you and I will have to stop doing this podcast, probably when we're old and decrepit and I can't move my hands anymore in order to edit. (laughs) At that point, we'll probably just take all of the things, shut it down, take all of your interviews, take all the stuff from the podcast and all the stuff that we tried to create here and hand it off to the next generation and say, here, we've done the best we can. You take it on to the future and do the best you can. Absolutely. So hi, future people who are listening to A Long Dead Me. (laughs) I'm Jeffrey. I'm a little crazy in the head. This is Alex. Somehow he's tolerated me since the third grade. Hello. And we'll see you in the next episode of however many it is we do next time on They Create Worlds. 